welcome to today's panel. Today's panel is So You Want to Be a GM, and we're going to discuss all things about game mastering and dungeon mastering. The titles are quite interchangeable, it just depends on the system. So if you were here for game master tips or you were here for dungeon master tips, you're in the right place. And with me, I have my fantastic panelists. Good morning, I'm Adib Hawa. I've been DMing since 1991, I think. It's probably my favoriteest hobby ever. I like it more than pizza. I like pizza and DMing, so it's it's my thing. Morning, I am Carl Gray. I am also one of those forever DMs that the majority of my time spent role-playing is as the DM in my various groups. Something that I love and I'm very passionate about doing. Hi, I'm Michelle Hayward. Um, I've been GMing since uh, 2004. I've GM'd in multiple places. I started out in Cape Town, GM'd for some Americans while I was in Japan, and now I live in Ireland where I GM both laps and tabletop. She's really good. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's true if the other panelists say it. Totally not bought for or paid for. And I'm Carla, if you don't know, and I run Dum Dum Die, an all-female, all-awesome D&D 5th edition homebrew, Twitch stream, and podcast. And I've been GMing for an amazing two years. Yes! So you've got a whole gamut of experience. So for our first question, how did you get into GMing? What was your first step and why? I used to read, I still read comics a lot. And in 1990, I found an, a comic with a, a role-playing ad in the back. And somehow Wizards had managed to stamp a bunch of comics with their address and phone number. And I was curious, so I phoned them. I went to their shop on my summer holidays. And then I spent a year saving up for the red box, working for my dad. And I bought my red box in 1991. And then I ran my first campaign with school friends, which was a total disaster because I didn't understand what I was doing or what, was, what I was supposed to do because there was no one to show me or no, we'd never role played before. No one had ever had any experience of role playing. A bunch of kids in, a, in school in lunchtime trying to work out how this thing works and what happens when you roll a D20. Is lunchtime like 45 minutes? I mean, no, that's the no, no. well, fastest game of D&D. It was the last week of school that I bought yeah. the box. So I went to the school. And there's no classes. Oh, okay. So that entire week, I would bring the box with me to class. And at lunchtime, we try and work out how the rules worked. Not to make anyone feel old here, but you say you were figuring out D&D in 1991. I was being born in 1991, so I, I don't have quite that experience yet. <laughs> That's such a lie. I'm giving you de-inspiration because when, whenever someone's like, I don't want to make you feel old. That's exactly what you're trying to do, yeah, Kyle. You're experienced. I'm experienced, yes. I was a player for a few campaigns and eventually I just kind of got to this idea of I want to tell my own stories. So I mainly run homebrew worlds. Because I decided that I enjoyed being behind the screen more than I enjoyed playing in the games. I enjoyed building my own worlds and finding my own characters more than I ever enjoyed playing the game myself. That's really what got me into it. And when 5th edition came out, I just fell in love. I was like, this is the greatest RPG system ever. It they have fixed good. every problem I had with it. And so I jumped in and haven't stopped since. I was a very reluctant GM. I started role-playing about two years before I tried GMing, and I loved playing. I saw no need to GM. I was never going to GM. It looked scary. I wasn't going to do it. I even wrote a scenario but refused to GM it. Someone else had to. But then what happened was my friends in the college role-playing society got very tricksy, 
and I was reading Aria comics at the time. So one lunchtime, they just happened to leave out the core rule book for Changeling the Dreaming. And I flicked through it going, you know what? You could run a really cool Aria-like game with this. Yeah, yeah, pity no one's ever going to do that. What? <laughs> oh, no one here's going to run that. But it would be so cool. Well, I mean, if, if it would be so cool, I guess you're going to have to do it. Then I was like, oh, gee, I, I guess I am going to have to do it. And decided to try GMing and fell in love with it. That's the thing, right? Is try it. If you have any interest in it whatsoever, and Adib mentioned this off camera, and I'd love for him to say it again, but it can be really, really fun, but only if you're prepared and willing to do it, because it is more prep work. Anyone can be a DM. It just requires a little bit more prep than being a player. Just a little bit. <laughs> well, I, I, suppose it, I suppose it depends on your GM style and also what you're running. Start with the modules. All the modules that, for instance, Dungeons & Dragons put out make it really easy to run, run campaigns now if, if, you're, if you're a newbie. Just start out with it. So, yeah. Yeah. Once I graduate to Kyle's, I build my own world from the ground up. And this is how the economics works. And this is how the finance works. This is how the sewage works in the city and so on. But you start with, sure. with your own modules. and You start off with the modules and you move your way up from there. We do have some questions, but Orca underscore S has one specifically for you, Michelle. And I feel like even me, I want to know. Aria Worlds? Aria is an old Image Comics comic, which basically was about fairies in the modern day world. Arya, the main character, was a she princess who wandered around looking normal. You know, there, there was a red cap who was a grizzled old war veteran. So it was basically classic fairies, but in the modern day world. And Changeling the Dreaming isn't exactly the same, but it's kind of similar. Something to be taken from this and from the fact that Michelle mentioned a, a very different system is... A lot of the tips, unless they're obviously very mechanically focused for D&D 5e or Pathfinder or the Changeling, the Dreaming, <laughs> is you can use it across any system you play and yeah. run. Okay, now I need to ask, what systems are you guys running? I am running Earthdawn, D&D 5th Ed, World of Darkness, uh, Mixed Splat, where everyone is a different monster. And my fourth campaign <laughs> is Scion 2nd Edition. So currently at the moment, I am running three different D&D campaigns in 5th edition, and two of them are homebrew. I'm currently running a Scion 1st edition by White Wolf. It's been going for six years, which is why we haven't transitioned over, because they're about to become gods, and that rulebook isn't out for 2nd edition. Yeah, and true. an aberrant campaign that's been going for nine years. From my side, um, obviously D&D on the podcast, but we also play lots of different systems. I like to buy and support slightly random newer systems. So we've got Altered Carbon coming soon. Alice is Missing, which I really want to play, but I'm, I'm very scared of because <laughs> it, it looks amazing, but it looks very emotionally intensive. And then we're also playing in Wagadu, the new D&D 5e setting that is Afro-fantasy. It's stunning. And they've so far only got 300 pages, which you can download for free on their Kickstarter. So they're releasing Bunkers and Badasses for Borderlands soon, which is going to be hilarious. I think this nicely segues into a question. What would be the easiest system for a new GM, do you think? Personally, looking at it was, say, 5th edition, because I've been looking at it myself. Now I'm running a 5th ed campaign for, some, for a group of friends, and I just picked up the core rules and the Storm King's Wrath campaign, and I'm just running that. It's a bit of an outlay to pick up all the books, 
But once you've got it, and then you've got all the internet resources like D&D Beyond and all to help you with content creation and stuff like that. So I've got three people who haven't ever role played before in the group. And D&D Beyond made my life so much easier with character generation for them. I'm going to agree with Adib there. I think 5th edition is super easy to pick up, especially if you're going to do a, a core adventure. I'm currently running, my third game that I'm running that's not homebrew is Waterdeep Dragon Heist. And also, I found that that is something that's super easy to pick up and run. The other th- system I would suggest that is probably one of the easiest to run because it's not very rules intensive is Dread something that you can pick up and run a single session campaign and just kind of get your creativity and your game master juices kind of flowing and see, do I like this without committing to trying to read the entire Dungeon Master's Guide? Dungeon World, the Powered by the Apocalypse games, and for rules light, are also really good for new players and new DMs because they're, they're one-page character sheets that give you all the rules and the character development and stuff is really quick and easy. My answer is whatever takes your fancy, if it's something you're interested in, you're going to be more invested in running it and you'll, you know, take the time needed to learn it. If you're not interested in D&D and you try and force yourself to learn it, you're not mm. going to do very well. But in terms of actual systems, depending on if you want rules light or a bit more rules, a bit more rules, honestly, look at Call of Cthulhu. It's quite simple if you want to run a nice quick horror game. If you want to go rules light, there are lots of wonderful one-page systems out there that are you know, pay what you want or free, such as Lasers and Feelings or Honey Heist. They're beautiful little one-page systems where it's like one mechanic, that's it. So if you want to kind of go the more improv route, those are really good to try out. I agree with everyone. I was also going to recommend Dread. Also, that's really good for new players because it also the character sheet is one page, if that. And also one-page RPGs, so like there's a really fun one called Crash Pandas. Basically, you're raccoons who steal a racing car. It's just you're living your best life. So there's another question here. It says, what tips can you give to improve DMing skills besides just, you know, experience running games? Uh, reading is critical. You need to read. To, to, no, improving your DMing skills and knowing the rules, but to, to come up with storylines and interesting characters, which is a big part of Engaging your players is reading books on writing. Reading a book on how to write novels has helped me a lot. I read Stephen King's book, which now escapes me, on how to on how to write, and that basically helped me a lot in creating engaging NPCs because I was having trouble with that. So, in terms of my tips, I would say read every fantasy, sci-fi, any kind of book you can get your hands on. Read mm-hmm. a lot because those are going to be the, what inspires you to create great characters. But also the greatest one, you have access to the internet. I mean, I've just finished watching an entire, like, I spent a, a weekend doing a deep dive into castle design because I'm building an entire city that's very focused around this, this whole idea of being a walled city that defends an area. I just mm-hmm. went deep dive and watched like two or three hours on different castles and building the perfect medieval castle to design the city. Yeah, nonfiction is important as well. And so, the internet is a huge resource for that. History Channel is your friend in terms of that. You know, look at what they did for sewer systems in, in Dark Ages and how they designed churches and buildings and things like that. That'll give you a really good understanding of what kind of world you want to design. Adib and Kyle have given really, really good tips there. Another tip that I would give from a slightly different angle is, if possible, 
keep playing. Get into a game, play a game. And if you can't, then find, you know, some role-playing podcast like Dum Dum Die or, um, (laughs) or, you know, Critical Role, if that's your thing, or something like that, and watch that. And just afterwards, look at it critically and go, what did I enjoy? What didn't I enjoy? What can I steal from that and use? What didn't really work out that I should probably avoid doing? My friends and I GM for each other in games, and we steal useful things from each other all the time. If something worked really well, you'll find an altered version of it suddenly cropping up in other people's games. So, yeah, watch, play, and steal. Yeah, absolutely. My acting background in me is, if you'd like, and I think it's just generally good for you as a person, is to maybe try some improv classes or watch some videos about improv. But essentially, the main tenet of improv is the yes and. People say something to you and then you say, yes, you absolutely can go into the sewer systems. And and then you add something. There is a giant crocodile that loves to eat adventurers. That's one way to always keep a story going and really connect and use your players and involve them. So yeah, so I would definitely recommend improv and just for general life. If I may add, I'd also say communicating with your players helps a lot because you know what they want and that'll add tips to what, you know, if you can get, I can never seem to get my players to talk back to me. They just like show up, play and leave. Am I doing the right thing? Are, Are you guys enjoying this? Like, and then they say, we keep showing up, don't we? But I found that if you have players who talk to you about the things they found that they liked and the things that they find that they didn't like, you can build on that in future. Sometimes we all think a lot of the pressure is on the GM. And of course, there's, you know, the GM comes and has to be the most prepared and the most ready. But the more you let your players get involved and share your world and, you know, when they give those crazy ideas, they're like, oh, it's the big bad mind reader. You're like, he is now. A, the more connected and involved they'll feel. But also B, it helps take off some stress for everything has to come out of your mind. You can Mm. totally use what your players bring. I find one of the greatest steals is what you get from your players' backstories. I want a page from you and then I steal mercilessly from their backstories to to flesh out different ideas within my world because I also want them to be connected to the world. Here's another question. What is your ideal number of players in a campaign? I like big groups. I cannot lie. (laughs) (laughs) I like big groups and I cannot lie. I tend to play between five and six players because I find that almost always someone can't make it. I try and Mm. average out. Usually between four and five people can make it. Six players is my my limit. I'm a big fan of old-fashioned superhero comics. And in a superhero comic, the team is usually seven people. And I've tried that and it was a disaster. So I stick it between five and six players. I am very much on the three to five. Five mm-hmm. is my kind of ideal group. I feel like at five, I can give everyone a chance to shine and all their own story within the, the game. It gives you enough variety of experience and skill between your different players. They can deal with everything within a 5e dungeon, you know. Someone's likely proficient in almost every skill at that point or has got a spell or something that they can deal with almost every task that comes up without feeling too much like it's too easy almost. Five is my preferred number there. I've run everything between two and eight, but my sweet spot, like Kyle, it's five. Five tends to be a very good number. It's a tiebreaker number, so you don't get half the players wanting to do one thing, half the players wanting to do another and they cannot agree. But 
to be honest with you, both of my campaigns at the moment are currently at four players. So it does vary. Like four or six is all right as well, but five is the sweet spot. Four to five is generally good for most systems, but when playing something like Argument Sake Dread, I'm happy to go up to 10 if there's space for it because it's so quick going and your characters aren't meant to live forever. People are going to die and then you need more cannon fodder. (laughs) What? The recommended minimum time required for a good game session. I feel between two and two and a half hours is the minimum time for a session. I've been averaging between two and a half and three and a half hours for a session. And a lot of players, especially as we get older, players like I got to go up, get up early tomorrow. I've got kids to, to take to school. So I've been averaging about two, two and a half hours is the minimum I find. I like to go for longer, but most of my players are old. We can't, we can't hang, hold out for long periods of time. So I, I tend to go with three hours just because I tend to do a very tech-focused setup. I use a TV for creating maps and stuff. So if I'm going to bother to set up everything, I want at least three hours of play before I go. But the majority of my sessions, we play about eight hours. Oh, wow. to nine hours we literally start about 9 10 a.m on a sunday and play right through until about 9 10 at night with breaks yeah, obviously you're, you're so. <laughs> even me i'm like on a sunday guys that's not even the worst thing i've had my players try and convince me we've done it twice and i've said to them i'm never doing this again where we literally did a sleepover where all of us stayed over and we oh, played wow. from friday night right through to sunday oh. wow. i was like guys this was the most draining experience of my life i am never doing this again yeah because first off i had to try and prep or what was the equivalent of 20 hours of play. Anyway, I was just like emotionally drained. I was like, I am tired. I want to sleep. As a DM, you're basically on as a character. You're, you're basically, it's like doing a 20-hour acting stunt. You're acting mm. for 20 sure. hours. I've been in that boat too. It's fun, but the older you get, the more, no, I, I don't want to do that to myself. It becomes... Not enough um, fucking world. Minimum time is is an interesting one because it really depends what you're trying to do and the story you're trying to tell. Um, Mm -hmm. Like we've talked about one-page RPGs. A lot of those you can actually play a full story in an hour. If you're doing that, an hour is fine. If you're doing an investigation game or something like that, then you probably want to have two or three hours as your minimum Mm -hmm. so that you get past the basic introductions. So it really depends on what you're running, how long you need as a minimum time. I'd agree with that. It's also, you know, how long is a piece of string? It depends. Like some people like to play shorter sessions, but just have lots more of them. Some people have less time and are like, we're going to do once a month and we're going to do six hours, eight hours, Mm. once a month or every second month. So it depends on what your player's time can commit to. I myself generally think more than two and a half hours for me is too long as a player, especially if it's in like an emotionally draining setting because I want the excitement of keep coming back and Mm. building those cliffhangers. So I would just say if you are going to run shorter sessions that aren't complete games, so they're not a one-shot RPG or one-page RPG, is create that cliffhanger so that they're not going to come back in their next session and be like, and now we're shopping. Yay. Unless they love shopping. I always try to end on the cliffhanger. Everyone loves the shopping. So you have the starter game, but your friends don't want to play. How would you go about gaining players and how do you bind randoms together as a united group? Michelle and I were both at UCT at different, at different times. We, were friend, we had friends in common. 
why people continually compare my evening to hers. I tended to use UCT as not the UCT time I spent as my base, and then I use my friendship friendship circle for players because I I don't really have anywhere else to go, to look. I've I've had some random people sign up, friends of friends. Yeah, I haven't actually had much luck finding random players joining groups. It's usually been people I know or people who know people I know. And that's been it. I don't really have much experience with that, I'm afraid. So, uh, in terms of how do you find players? Well, you know, chloroform. <laughs> Guys, we do not condone that. Do not play at Kyle's table. That's why he plays with you for eight hours, because it's like three hours to get you conscious again. In all honesty, in terms of that, go to D&D events. In the Pretoria Joburg area, there is timeless board games. I think, I, no, Stuart mentioned there was one in Durban that I'm not sure he plays at the store. He's on the Discord, so if you're looking for a store in Durban, at two, I think it's the Stubs. On the Discord server, he'll be able to direct you. Um, in terms of Cape Town, I'm not sure what's down there either. But find mm-hmm. events like that. You're going to find people who are interested in role-playing because they are there. And then get to know them, make friends, and then go from there. Lure them in. Excellent. <laughs> exactly. One of us. One of us. Yeah. Oh. As someone who's had to start games in like multiple different countries after moves, um, use the internet. The internet is your friend. If there's local game stores, go there, ask if they know anything about local meetup groups or things like that. But failing that, discussion boards, even if you're part of a discussion board that's got nothing to do with role playing, but is like a local area one, go, hi, would anyone like to try role playing? That's how I got my game going in Japan on the assistant language teachers discussion board. Look up on Facebook if there's any local groups. Just type in gaming and your city name and chances are something will pop up. And use that to make connections to the local community and try and find people who are looking for a game. Especially if you're willing to run a game, chances are there are people who want to play. If you GM it, they will come. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) You've done all these things. Those are really, really great tips. Along the lines of what you said, Michelle, a chat is saying, ask coworkers. And I think this is maybe we can make it a twofold question. One, how do you bring them as people together? So as players. And then secondarily, how do you bring a random group of adventurers together? As people, uh, well, once you've picked your, your playing venue, then hopefully everyone shows up. I always have a, a zero session where everyone does character creation together. We talk to each other. And I try and lay out what my plans are for the campaign, what their experience is, and what they'd like to play. I get the players to know each other, buy some pizza, talk, talk to each other, and hang out for a bit. So the first session is always a hangout session and a calculation session. Maybe even the second session, if necessary, if people don't finish in the first, finish calculation in the first session. Then the first playing session, I tend to be very careful with finding a good reason for people to hang out together and have a pre-existing usually a structure or like an organization that has brought them together randomly. Um, with the current game I'm playing for All of the Darkness, they're all working for private detective agencies. They've all been hired to work together. So while the characters don't know each other, they now have a reason to work together and a goal that they have a case and they have to work on the case together. So yeah, session zero to socialize and get to know each other and work out the specifics of the campaign and the character creation. And then I find it's better for them to have an existing reason to hang out together as opposed to random adventures in a bar, which is a classic. But I always, I know, you're like the kettle. My D&D game, they're all working as caravan guards and something weird has happened in the caravan. 
So now they're on their, their job is protect the caravan to get through. And once they've had that first adventure of working together, then another advent, you know, someone say, hey, you guys work well together. How would you like to clear out my mind that's full of kobolds? I'll pay you in silver. So that, that's what's worked for me so far. The best strategy is get them to hang out as people together. Don't let the session just kind of end and everyone goes, oh, great session, bye. <laughs> get them to become least friendly with each other because I think that's going to encourage the game continuing. If, you know, if they develop friendships internally. In terms of getting their characters to stay together as a party, bond them with trauma, become an NPC that they all love, and then kill them. And then be like, it was the big bad who did it. And that's going to definitely keep them together and be like, we're going to kill that guy. You know, he killed Spurty the Goblin, who we all loved. He's going to die. (laughs) Part one, how do you bring the players together as a group? If you have the time, because it depends where you're running things, what your location is, if you have the time, try to let people hang out together before the game starts. I find that's easier than than stopping them from running off as soon as it's finished, especially if they have, Mm. you know, to get to bed and they've got work in the morning and things like that. So everyone arrive at the location half an hour before we actually want to start playing. Have some snacks available, check for allergies for people to have just to kind of have that opportunity to talk to each other and that it'll generally be a bit awkward like the first time but once you've played a session or two people then have the game to talk about which is really really useful so just give that little bit of space for socializing even if you're meeting up because of the times that it is on discord for your games Mm. you know just have that half an hour before game starts where everyone just natters about how things are going in their life as for bringing the characters together what I've been doing is creating hooks into the games for the party. And that'll be a predefined condition of the characters. Like you all work for McDonald's or one of my games that I'm running, it was like, right, you were all kids in the same foster home. So it gives people a hook to put their characters onto. And then you can do some fun stuff like um, everyone just draw a name out of the hat, write down one good memory you have with that other character. And kind of create a few bonds before the game starts during session zero. I find that really helps with party cohesion. I think there's one thing I forgot. I tend to play a game called 10 Things I Hate About You, <laughs> where the players have, you've spent a week together. Now every player tells, the, uh, write, you write down 10 things that you hate about the other players or the players hate about you. Like, A, you snore. Uh, so things like that. So then... And the player characters know each other as people. That tends to lubricate the, the situation a bit. <laughs> Those are fantastic tips. Um, I just want to say, hey, Kirsten from chat, one of our original players. Yeah, we also used to socialize before. And I mean, also build, like um, Michelle and uh, everyone's actually mentioned, is build that time into your game session. So if you know you're going to play for two and a half hours, but they can only commit two and a half hours, plan your session to be two hours because it really is important to have that chat even if Mm. like after session three that chat is only about the game it's building camaraderie that their player characters will also take into the game and i think it does lead on to this other question it was covered by one or two other panels but i think it's always a very good question to get lots of different GM's opinions on, because I think it's something that can be quite difficult to deal with, is how do you get shy players to engage more with the game rather than just potentially sitting around the table and waiting for their turn to, you know, attack? 
I'm going to assume for this panel's answer to the question that the player wants to do that. They want to engage more. They haven't come to you and said, look, I'm just here to, you know, tag along and I just want to enjoy the adventure. So, you know, this player really wants to get more involved, but they're they're shy for the arguments Mm. of this panel. I personally tend to write stories revolving at least one kind of arc so that every player gets to shine. The shyest player in my Earththorn game, I feel she's the shyest player because uh, the storyline is we're going to go to her homeland and meet her character's mom and some matriarchal societies. So her mother's decided it's time for the character to get married. So the adventure's running, uh, running where they're supposed to meet the queen of the orcish nation and her orcish, her orc mom has decided it's time for you to become a man and get married. This entire arc is at her chance to shine. And then I try and like make little notes of things she said or they, they've said, the player said, and then try to, to just make sure that every session I throw them a moment to, to show off their skills or to solve a unique problem that only they can solve. That's worked for me so far. But it requires a bit more prep and a bit more effort to do, get that done. So I agree with the Deeb's answer there. You know, definitely bring your players into the world. Involve their backstory within your world so that there is that feeling of being involved. But I think near the beginning of your campaign, easiest way to get a player to who's shy to role play, make yourself look ridiculous. Mm. I gave the, the original example of Bert the Goblin, my last one, and have Spirit like talk like this and just be completely insane and like embarrass yourself completely because after that, your player's not going to feel shy anymore about embarrassing doing a bit of an embarrassing voice if you've done the most embarrassing voice you could think of. If you're doing something ridiculous, they'll feel more comfortable doing something ridiculous. I think the big thing with shy players is to a large extent, they've got to come out of their shell on their own terms. So a big thing that I'll do is if I notice that someone's not getting their chance to talk because they're a bit too shy to butt in when everyone else is talking, as a GM, I'll just take that moment to go, so while they're all doing that, what are you doing? And just give them the moment to talk uninterrupted by the others to say what it is that they want to do. If there's a particular part of role-playing that they're not quite comfortable with yet, like talking to the NPCs, maybe they're not ready to give the big speeches yet, that's where your dice come in. They're there as a tool. Mm-hmm. So you can go, okay, well, what, what's the general idea of what you want to say? Okay, fantastic. Now make a roll for it. And generally, over time, seeing everyone else interact, they'll kind of go, okay... I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to give it a go. And they'll give it a try. But until that point, just kind of assist them in being part of the game and being active in the game. And eventually they'll come out of the shell on their own terms. I agree with all of those. I would just maybe add a potential trick that How to Be a Great Game Master guy used in our group and I've used since then is, especially if you have like you know, arguments like you've got four players and you have three very strong players that are always like, I'm doing this, I'm talking to that NPC, is to give the shy or the quiet player an item or an NPC that only speaks to them, like hates the other three characters, so that they are integral to the plot. And there are moments where, arguments like it's maybe a message that only that player can hear. So then it gives time and space for them to have a moment to shine mechanically in the game that maybe doesn't have to revolve around their story because potentially you might wait three campaign seasons before you get to play it for story argument's sake. 
give them a reason to be the only person who can do this thing. I hope that helps answer Ags the crazy. Question. Okay. What do you do? This was not asked here, but it's been asked before. What do you do if you have a player that's ruining the game for everyone else? For whatever reason, they're, you know, not pleasant as a character. They're, you know, stealing everything. How do you deal with a player that player character is not gelling with the game and gelling with the team? Kill them. <laughs> Just straight up, you're at rocks full. No, Only no, you die. That's, Bye. That's the final. That's the last resort. No, um, I've been lucky. I've not had that problem. But I usually take the player aside and ask them what their intentions are with the behavior. I've rarely played games with character alignments. I've been lucky to avoid the chaotic neutral tap trap or chaotic evil trap, where players say, "I'm just playing my character," so it hasn't happened to me. Yeah, I tend to take the player aside and say, you know, ease off on this. You're working as a team. And when I was younger, it was a problem. I had a couple of players who liked playing the loner McLoner who would go off on their own and have to deal with them alone while the rest of the players are doing something else. And I didn't know how to handle that. But as I've gotten older, my tolerance for that has gotten less. I try and take them aside and talk to them. And if it's not working, then I whack the player. I whack the player, the, the character. So I'd like to whack the player, but I prefer to whack the, the character. No, I actually haven't done that either. I've only killed like two player characters in 20 years. In a situation like that, I take them aside and talk to them and try to wean them off that behavior. If it becomes very problematic, in my current state of mind, I would have no qualms killing the character until they get the message. Become more ruthless at the table than I was when I was younger. It is a team activity. It's a group activity. It has to be entertaining and fun for everyone. And if you're not gelling, I will ask you to leave if it becomes extremely problematic with behavior, which I am very lucky to have never had a problem with. So I've always played with people I like. My attitude is that if you're not going to gel, I'll ask you to change your behavior. And if not, I'll kill your character. And if that doesn't get through, then I'll ask you to leave. I have other players at the table and I'm not going to let you monopolize and ruin the experience for everyone. I put hours of effort into this, into prepping every session. And if you mess this up for me, I'm going to murder you. Chloroform. <laughs> so in terms of that, I have also been very lucky in it. But I think that's also it comes down to the fact that I am very careful about who I let come play at my table. If you kind of got one red flag in my book, I'm like, mm, okay, we can do a one shot. I'll see how you go through that. That tends to be my answer. If someone, if I, if someone new or something approaches me and it's like, Hey, you know, I'd really love to play with a campaign with you. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. before we start dating, let's go on a first date here. <laughs> no, let's try this relationship out and see if, if, if we're compatible. Because I have found players that in one shot, I'm just like, that was a lot of fun. But we're not going to play again. I'm sorry. We do not want the same things out of this game. Um, so, yeah, I find that. But if you are going to be a problem player at my table, I will talk to you once. Second time, you will not no longer know when the session is planned for. I won't kill your character or anything like that because that just seems like I'm being the bad guy and I don't want to be the bad guy. The burnt hand list. Playing the bad guy, but I don't want to be the bad guy. Yeah, basically the first thing I do is talk to the person. Very often when someone comes across as what's termed a, a problem player, it's not actually that they're a problem player. We often talk about GMing styles and what's your GMing style. There are also play styles. 
And players want different things from the game. So very often when someone is a problem player, what you actually have is a mismatch of play styles with the rest of the group. And when you talk about, well, what is it that you want? What are your expectations? You find out that there's just a mismatch. And sometimes that means that you have to ask someone, look, I don't think this is really working out. You're going to be happier in a different game. We're going to be happier with a different play style. So it's better for everyone if we just agree that this isn't working. Sometimes people can go, oh, hang on, you know what? I can adjust that. I can tweak that. That's not going to affect my enjoyment of play that much. So talking and communicating is really important. But you mm -hmm. do sometimes have to just call it quits and go, look, this particular play style doesn't gel with the rest of the group, doesn't gel with the GMing style. Everyone's going to be happier at a different table. Also, the crux of it is... It's also for their own enjoyment in the end, right? Because if they're just playing by themselves, then they would have done something by themselves at home. So they mm. want to be a part of a group. And it's just this group is potentially a mismatch. Mm. I'd also work with them on their character, especially if for argument's sake they are playing that evil, I'm an evil overlord undercover, and help them see how their group can add to that because guys even villains need underlings right so you're not going to attack your own party or murder your own party because who are you going to rule the world with you can build those loner characters you can build that one who's totally intrinsically evil underneath but how do you work it within the group that it would reliably still be part of a group otherwise you would be on an adventure alone We are nearing the end, so I think let us do your top two tips for running games or being a game master. My top tip is Kyle's tip that you gave earlier, and that's read. And not just fantasy and, and sci-fi, which is a good thing to read if you're running those games. Nonfiction, books and history. Also watch TV shows. Creativity is like a sponge. You need to fill it with water so you can squeeze it out to get what you need for game. Oh, I like that. Um, so you need to fill your sponge with stuff so you can get stuff when you need it to tell stories. Also, have someone you talk to about game who's not in the game. Someone that you have as a sounding board. I have a friend who's currently moved out of Cape Town, and we talk about stuff all the time. But we also talk about he's a, he's a, he's a fervent role player, so we talk about game. And I run ideas by him, and he tells me, no, this, is, this doesn't sound like a good idea. This doesn't work. So having, having a sounding board outside of game, another DM or another uh, someone who's playing somewhere else is a mm. great idea to have. From my side, I would say my top two tips are prep is your friend. Even if you're running like an, a written adventure or if you're running your own homebrew world, prep. Make sure you know what's going on. Prep to the extreme of knowing this episode or this session, we're going to go do ABC. Prep and go, okay, so the players are here, they can go, On this road, or this road, or this road, or this road, and know where your potential areas are that you're going to be exploring in the next session. You know, if they're in one city and they're only like level two players, they're not going to make it to the other end of the continent, but they mm -hmm. may explore the next city over or the countryside around that city. So know where your areas are to prep. And then for my second tip, just have fun with it. You know, enjoy what you're doing, because if you don't enjoy it, your players aren't going to enjoy it and your game is going to fall apart. Basically, especially if you're GMing for the first time, one of the scariest things that can happen is when the players don't do what you expect them to do. So mm. like Kyle said, prep. But particularly when you're prepping, think about the why. Be your own five-year-old. 
Why is this happening? Why does the big bad want this to happen? Why are they using these minions? And just keep asking why so that you have a full understanding of what's happening behind the scenes. Because that way, when your players go off script and do something completely unexpected, you've kind of already internally realized how the world's going to react to that. And the second tip on a purely practical note is never, ever, ever underestimate the value of a toilet break or a tea break, or if you smoke a smoke break, for when you need a few minutes to figure out what on earth is going to happen next. Players are like (laughs) five-year-olds. Yeah, my top two tips would be be malleable. Um, Mm. And even if you're running an adventure path, because you don't want your players to feel like there's only one foregone conclusion. Otherwise, they'd read a book Mm. or they'd play The Witcher, right? They're here for the expanse their imagination and your imagination can give to them. So be malleable. Um, It doesn't mean you're throwing away all your prep, but perhaps you had a tower like in the left forest and they decided to go to the beach. It's now a beach tower, guys. It also doesn't need to be stock standard, right? You can just move things and you can swap them around. So um, be malleable. And then legitimately, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Doesn't matter what Mm. the rules say. Doesn't matter what what the books say. If you and your players are having fun, you're absolutely doing it right. Thank you so, so much, everyone. And thank you, chat, for being here. On that note, uh, where can people follow you if they'd like to um, support you, find out more, those kinds of things? I don't really do social media much, but I am on Facebook as Muadib Gomez, M-U-A-D-I-B space G-O-M-E-Z. And adib.h.hawa at gmail.com. Find me on Facebook as Carl Gary Gray. I am on the DD South Africa group as well as a few others. Uh, you can also find me on the Dum Dum Die Discord. I am a moderator here. And you will usually find me on the Dum Dum Die stream also as a mod. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a social media hermit, as it were. Um... Like you can find me on Facebook, but uh, I'm not going to guarantee that I'll respond on Facebook. <laughs> I have an Instagram, but that's mostly pictures of food, so you probably don't want to go look at that. I am on the Dum Dum Die Discord, though, so uh, unless they decide to kick me out, you can find me there. Definitely keeping you. Our play styles are very in, in alignment. <laughs> I'm from Dum Dum Die, and you can find us on all the socials at Dum Dum Die, spelled D-U-M-D-U-M-D-I-E, as well as on our own Discord. And to my panelists, once again, thank you for being here, taking time out and sharing your knowledge. And chat, as always, it's been an adventure. Otherwise, have an amazing adventure, everyone. Bye.